Good afternoon, everyone. Um, on behalf of the Disability Subcommittee, it's a great pleasure to welcome you all here today to our first Lunch and Learn event. So we have a great panel of speakers here today. Um, many thanks to Sinead, Adam, and John for joining us. And to those of you I haven't met before, I think I recognize all your faces though. I'm Davinia and I'm a knowledge lawyer in the Contact team and a member of the Disability Subcommittee. It's a privilege to have the opportunity to kick off this conversation today about disability and inclusion. The best description I've ever come across of inclusion is summed up in this quote. Diversity is being asked to the party Inclusion is being asked to dance, and belonging is feeling comfortable to get up and dance. Well, I'm delighted to finally be ready to get up and dance at Ayanna Goodbody, and have so many willing partners, no pun intended. <laughs> um, before I hand you over to the panel, I'd just like to say a few words about why we're here today. So last July 2019, the Diversity and Inclusion Committee decided to set up a subcommittee to focus on disability inclusion. Now the reason we set up that subcommittee is because inclusion doesn't just happen organically. It happens because we strategically push it through. And it isn't the sole job of leadership or of a handful of people in this firm. It's everyone's responsibility. So at our first subcommittee meeting, we considered where the firm is now in the disability space and where we want it to be. And as part of that discussion, the group asked me what my experience has been of working at ANO Goodbody as a person with a disability. I had to stop and think because I realized I hadn't actually been asked that question before. Over the 18 years that I've been at ANO Goodbody, I've only discussed my hearing loss on a need-to-know basis. So standing here today is a new experience for me. Following that first meeting, both the subcommittee and myself on a personal level realized that we needed to open up the conversation about disability. Having a frank and honest talk about disability and challenging our own subconscious bias and assumptions is key to making disability inclusion part of this firm's culture. Disability itself is rarely a barrier. The real barriers are physical, digital, and social. Disability inclusion means all of us working together to dismantle those barriers so that everyone has the same opportunity to reach their full potential. People with disabilities are the largest minority group in the world. There's 1.3 billion people living worldwide with a disability. That means to be representative of society, one in seven people in this room and in this firm should have a disability. That may well be the case, because we don't have any statistics, and 70% of disabilities are in fact invisible. However, the reality is that less than 20% of people with disabilities of working age are in employment. While we speak with compassion about people with disabilities, businesses are generally very weak in terms of practical supports. So the time has come to change our perspective 
and become more proactive in recruiting people with disabilities and in supporting their needs to ensure their retention and their promotion. As employees of a leading and innovative law firm, we are in a powerful position to lead the charge in the disability space. And when business leads, society follows. I'm now going to hand over to Shonit, um, who will moderate our panel discussion about disability, which I will be joining. And Shonit is founder of Amputee Disability Federation Ireland, and she has been promoting the employment of people with disabilities for over 20 years. So she's very well placed to raise all the key issues today. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Shonit. Thank you so much guys and thank you so much for having us here today. We are absolutely delighted and we have so much to talk about. I mean, getting the opportunity to moderate this crowd who never stop talking is going to be quite difficult. So I thought we would let them introduce themselves and I might just start with one little story. Essentially, I had an accident when I was 18 and I lost both my legs and my right hand. I mean, the right hand you can normally see, but today I'm actually in absolute bits. But you don't uh -huh. mind, do you? It just took a little bit lo longer getting ready today. But I wanted to share with you my first story of coming out with the disability. Because I think Davinia hit the nail on the head. We know that it exists, we know it's there, it touches all of our lives in some way or other, but we don't always discuss it or face it. Often we're afraid of what someone with a disability might bring to the organisation and to the team. So for my first proper interview, I really wanted this job, wanted it so badly. It was like desperation. And it was the first proper interview that I was going to. So I really wanted to disclose. I wanted to make sure that whatever I needed was actually going to be put in place for me. So when the interviewer asked me, tell me a little bit about yourself, I decided I, I would go straight in. And I'd go straight in with all of the horror and the terrible things that happened to me and the blood and the guts and the operations and I would tell them all of the various gory details and I was kind of nervous so I just looked down at the table and went through all of the rehabilitation that I had been through all of the difficulty and essentially a really tough story when I looked up after 40 minutes of ranting non-stop <laughs> The interviewer was in floods of tears. <laughs> you know the kind of crying where you actually can't breathe? You know the kind of <gasps> So this grown man was really having a breakdown right in front of me. I didn't know what to do. I had to run off and get him a glass of water. I, I, I was locked behind one of the other doors with the security swipe. Do you think I got that job? Well, raise of hands, yes? No, <laughs> not at all. That man was so embarrassed if he ever saw me at an event, he'd run. <laughs> so that's my worst coming out story. And I think it teaches me an awful lot about how not to do it. Don't overshare and definitely prepare them in advance where you can. I work in disability and employment. It's always been my main focus ever since I acquired my own disability. I'm currently working with the DCU Center of Excellence for Diversity and Inclusion, and I'm also working with the Open Doors Initiative, which I'm pleased to say you guys are a part of, which is all about including people with disabilities, refugees, asylum seekers, and young people from educationally disadvantaged areas. So that's what I do day in, day out. I love talking about this subject, but obviously we're here to talk about how you guys perceive disability. So I wonder if I 
I could turn to the panel, and I might start with you, Adam, mm -hmm. if you didn't mind actually sharing a coming out story of your own. Yeah. Hopefully not as embarrassing as mine. <laughs> so my name is Adam Harris, and I'm the founder and CEO of As I Am, Ireland's national autism charity. Uh, we're six years old this year, um, and there's a team of 14 of us. And we're the only autism charity in Europe where half of our team are actually on the autism spectrum ourselves. Um, in my story, I suppose, is my mother always says about me that I never do anything until I'm ready, and then I do it very quickly. And this started at birth because I was 20 days overdue, and then I was born in 25 minutes. Um, and I was a big baby, so I was nine and a half pound when I was born. Um, and apparently babies usually lose weight before they leave the hospital, but I actually gained weight. And they used to bring in two bottles to my mom and say, these are for the twins. And <laughs> the reason that this is relevant uh, to my story is that um, from the moment I was born, I had this huge attachment to my mom. So she couldn't put me out of her arms for two seconds without me becoming distressed. And I was lucky, I suppose, because I was the third child in the family. And mom could see very quickly that there was differences between me and my siblings. So I had lots of speech at a young age, but I understood words exactly as they were spoken or exactly as things were said. And believe me, if you have this difficulty, Ireland is the worst possible country <laughs> you could be born into. Um, I never passed my 18-month checkup because I had severe coordination delays. And I would talk and talk and talk about things that I was interested in, but only things that I was interested in. Now, to put this in context, when I started preschool, the thing that I was most interested in in the world was Tutankhamun, uh, the Egyptian pharaoh. The only problem is the year I started, he wasn't particularly popular among four and five-year-olds. So as a result, it was very difficult for me to make friends or, or get to know other people my own age. I also found going to any environment that was busy or there was foods very, very challenging. So very early on, the differences were highlighted. I got a diagnosis of Asperger's syndrome, which is a condition on the autism spectrum. Spent the first three years of my education in special school before moving to mainstream. But what's really interesting is a question I get asked a lot is kind of when did you find out or when did your parents tell you? And for my parents, it was no big deal. It was something they always talked openly about in the same way you might talk to a child about the hand they used to write with or the color of their eyes. It was just another characteristic for them and something they spoke about positively. Um, but when I really began to, to think about the fact of having a disability was probably around the age of when I was 11 or 12. And at this stage, I was much more self-aware. Uh, I was uh, in a point where a year later, I transitioned to secondary school independently. But I began to notice that if people found out you were on the spectrum, um, they would behave quite differently around you. So I can't tell you how many times I noticed growing up that I'd noticed people talking just a little bit slower to me or sometimes people speaking just a little bit louder to me. And it wasn't meant to be offensive, but the problem was we mainstreamed people with invisible disabilities into the community, but we didn't talk about it. And people desperately wanted to do the right thing, but didn't know what that looked like. And that's kind of why I set up as I am as a result. And that's essentially diversity without the yes. inclusion part. Yes. It's exactly as you had said. So you're at the party, but nobody's asking you mm -hmm. to dance and you don't feel comfortable enough mm -hmm. to dance. So in that situation in a workplace, more than likely the person's going to probably leave, I would yes, say. absolutely. Because you're not comfortable there. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for sharing. Davinia, do you have a funny story yeah. for us? Well, today is my big stomach coming out. I'm still hoping it all goes smoothly. <laughs> So as a child growing up, um, I was late in learning to speak. Um, my parents suspected something was wrong with my hearing, but I was 13 before I was finally diagnosed with high-frequency deafness. 
which um, essentially means I couldn't hear an environmental sounds like fire alarms and birds singing, some telephones ringing. And I also had some difficulty with the letter combinations like SH or CH, which are higher on the audiogram. Um, so when, my, when I was diagnosed, my doctors um, told my parents that I was a natural expert lip reader and that the brain, crafty as it is, had been um, watching people's faces for, um, to pick up the missing information. Um, and so that's how I managed until I was 13. So when I was finally diagnosed, the first person I taught outside my family was my French teacher. And that was because I had a French listening comprehension test coming up, I'm sure you all remember those. And I knew that the listening test would be difficult. So I proudly told my French teacher, I lip read. <laughs> and she immediately volunteered to read the transcript of the tape. Now, she arranged to meet me at the library to do so, which I thought was unusual at the time because of the mandatory silence required there. And when she met me, um, she mimed a silent bonjour divinia, ça va? And I have no idea what she proceeded to say after that. Um, and when she saw my puzzlement, she took me outside the library and she said, what's wrong? And I said, lip reading isn't what it says on the tin. I also need to hear your voice. The fact is that expert lip readers can only make out 30 to 40% of what is being said by lip reading alone. And it's not just about reading a person's lips, it's about reading the whole facial expression um, and their body language. Um, so the moral of this story, I guess, is that don't make assumptions about how to accommodate a person with a disability. Simply ask them how you can help them. You're dead right. Because, I mean, when we start making assumptions about other people's disabilities, then I think we end up definitely going down the wrong path. Yeah. My favorite one is when people help me to walk through doors. But unfortunately, once I was at an O2 Ability Awards event, and there was a, a wonderful blind woman who had offered to help me through the door. So she could push the door, but I couldn't. And I could see where we were going, and she couldn't. But whatever way she grabbed my arm, she actually took it off. <laughs> so, so she proceeds to storm through the door with my arm, talking to me, as I'm shouting at her, going, what are you doing? So yeah, I, <laughs> obviously in my situation, there's always a comedic element, but I totally see where you're coming from. So next time you want to make assumptions, just make sure you're not pulling their own arm off. John, I'm going to turn to you. I know you have a million stories to share with I us. Know, but how do you follow that, really? How do you follow that? Okay, but I suppose I'm on a different, slightly different aspect of all of this, because with me, what you see is what you get. There's nothing hidden there until my personality comes out. That's what's <laughs> hidden. Um, for me, I was born with my disability. I don't have a, any dramatic story. I just plopped out and there I was. Um, and my mother was just faced with then, I mean, back in 1971, so I'm probably the granddad of the group here, um, was faced with, oh God, what am I going to do with, with your man? Um, so, and throughout my whole life, it has been what you see is what you get. There's nothing hidden there. Um, but, uh, and I grew up as a child, like, if you're, you're, when did you become aware that you have a disability? I must be a bit of a gobshite because it took me a long time. Um, and the story I would say to you is that Halloween used to come and go. Um, and in my innocence, like my mother would dress me up in my, 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 my mask and I'd stand Laura, wasn't he the, 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 the one with the belly and the jacket and the cushion up my jumper. And I'd go around with all my friends and we'd knock on the door and they'd say, oh, who have we here? Oh, how are you, John? And I used to go back to my mother 
bawling, crying, going, how did they know who I was? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have a clue. And my poor, I'm like, we'll get you a better costume next year, love. <laughs> but, but for me, I suppose part of the perspective is when did I realize there was an impact to my disability? I didn't, because as kids, you're just children growing up. Um, everybody is different, and kids just accommodate. They can be cruel, but they, can, they accommodate, and once they know, they're fine. It's only when I moved into secondary school and a little bit later on that I picked up on the perceptions and the negativities that were out there um, around disability, and that's when it actually came. Just, I started to realize that, okay, there's, there, there's, there's more to this than meets the eye. But if you're talking about going for a job, uh, before, before, it says up there, President Paralympics Ireland, I currently work for Irish Wheelchair Association, but before that, um, I was uh, a member of AIB. I ended up be, be working in AIB for 25 years before I left. And when I went to the, um, for the interview process, like they asked me a question in there, how familiar are you with the keyboard? And I said, great. Now, I lied. I'd never touched a computer in my life. I, I played the piano. Um, but I got the job. But when I went in for the medical, at the time, the doctor looked at me and he asked me, how do you flush the toilet? And I, like an arrogant little pup, went, well, I press the handle like you do. It had never entered my, and you went for medicals at that stage, but it had never entered my spectrum that this is the type of question that, that, that you have. Now, so I'm a bit of a blagger here because these guys are, are working in that sector, but I, all I can give you today is my experience, my lived experience, growing up as someone who didn't actually see that I realized I had a disability, which may seem a bit stupid until, until later in life. And then... And then it's just to give you my experience of what has worked and, and what hasn't worked. Um, and it's, and the, you know, there's, I, I love the, the analogy, Davinia, that you used, and I'm going to rob it the next time about being invited to the party. I think that's beautifully expressed. Um, and I'm going to rob it. So, um, <laughs> but from that point of view, it's that lived experience. And, and the, what my, in my mindset, what I think about, and I would back up what you say, diversity and inclusion at the moment is a real buzzword. It's the agenda item at the moment. Mm -hmm. And we thought, and, and I tried to flip that in my head, um, and I say it's not actually about diversity, because if you focus on diversity, you're ticking boxes. If you focus on inclusion, if you put yourself in the other person's shoes and, and want to understand what they need and what they want to feel part of your firm, you'll get your diversity. You'll get more than, than, than you want in terms of diversity. So I try to ask people to, to flip it on its head and just change that mindset a little bit. Totally agree. And exactly as you say, it's the lived experience. I mean, I have to admit, I think this is the first panel talking about disability and diversity where all of us have a disability of our own. And I think it's really important to note that we all work. We're all coming from different aspects. I mean, I came to the disability sector quite late in life at 18. But at the same time, I had so many friends and family who had a disability that it was always part of my life and part of my family. And I think that's what we're really looking for here. It's not just those of us that are affected. It's also our allies and those people who want to change the world for the better, just a little bit at a time. Mm -hmm. I think that's how we do it. So when we talk about disability, we've all discussed essentially what we perceive disability to be. So it's all completely different. So for everyone in this room, how do we talk about disability? What is a disability? Is it that uh, terminology, perfect terminology? What exactly is the right way to talk about it? We talked about this a little bit in our preparation. Is the right terminology person with a disability or a disabled person? And I know we all disagreed on this, which was hilarious. So if you can't have four people who have the lived experience of disability agree, then how on earth is anyone who's trying to conduct an interview, how are they going to know? 
Do you mind, Adam, mm -hmm. talking about your own experience? Because I know that you have a very particular identity sort of idea yeah. here. Yes, well, absolutely. And it's, 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 it's not always necessarily where my own experiences have been, but it's very much where I think the experience of autistic people are at, um, in Ireland, but around the world as well. I think if you look at autism as a, as a condition, there's been a reality that for a long time was medicalized to the point that even if you look at a lot of universal design uh, frameworks, if you look at a lot of discussions around <clears throat> disability policy, autism has often been excluded because until just a few years ago, it was very much treated as a medical condition and something we should be proactively trying to cure as opposed to actually understanding the person and hearing their voice. And as a result of that, I suppose autistic adults are, are, are very keen to change the narrative around uh, how we talk about autism. And there's other forms of diversity that when we talk about it, we wouldn't see them as something negative or we wouldn't see them as something that can be left outside the room. We'd see them as something that are fundamental to the person. So for example, we wouldn't say a person with gayness or we wouldn't say a person with Judaism. We'd say a Jewish person or a gay person. And we'd see that as a positive character attribute. As a result, within the autism community, we say autistic person because it's a positive part of who the person is. It's not something that can be left outside the door. But by the same token, I think it's really important because we understand it as something that's fundamental to how the person sees and processes and experiences the world. And as a result, that we have to recognize that the person will need accommodations because it's not something that can be segregated or removed uh, or taken away. I think that language becomes really important in the advocacy world and the disability politics world. What I think is important is it can scare people who don't know about disability, because what if I say the wrong thing? I think that's the last thing we want. For me, language is always about intention. Um, you know, I sometimes talk about I was away in Boston just a, a couple of months ago for work, and I was in the Kennedy Library, and they had a very small section on Eunice Kennedy and the work she did in setting up the Special Olympics. But some of the early materials for the Special Olympics, I don't think I'd use the terminology uh, that was printed on them. Some of it was highly offensive. Yet it's somebody who did it more probably for people with disabilities at the time than anybody else. So it's about realizing, I think, that it's all about intention and call an individual by their name and let them lead with what language they want used. Great point. And I know that we often talk about person first language, person with a disability, and disabled person, which is identity first language. And I know you have strong feelings on this as well, John. Yeah, and I think it feeds into what Adam just said, because for me, I'm less, I'm less obsessed about, about the terminology. And I'm aware in the professional world there has to be correct terminology, but, but also on a human level. And my, 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 my obsession about it is that I think, it, to Adam's point, it puts people off. So I'll know very well from your, from your demeanor and your terminology whether you were mm -hmm. deliberately trying to be offensive or not in what you say. So I think it's the intention. So if I can focus on what the, so if someone, um, like crippled is the word that, that people are probably most offended about with physical disability in the world, my family, as a joke, call me that. <laughs> um, here, here he comes, this is the, your man. And, and it, but that's fine, because I know the intention isn't bad there. Um, but so for me, I, I, and I just think we as a, com a community, for want of a better word, as a group of people, have to, if we want to bring our supporters and then following that, the non-supporters and the others who, who want to embrace this into the fold, we'll scare them if we say, well, you can't use that terminology because of this. You can't use that. You can't say this. So. Um, and that would put you off and say, oh God, this is a minefield. Um, so for me, the, 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 my stance on the, I'll be, I'm less obsessed with the terminology, I'm more, more interested in the intention. But if we could get to a point that, 
that you know people in disabled person because within the community some people if you say I'm a, I'm a disabled you're a disabled person they'll get offended yeah. and they'll say somebody said to me I'm not vi visually impaired I'm vision impaired and for me he was he was picking at straws because says I understand your point but you're ugly from where I am so you could fit both <laughs> but the point the, the point and I knew him well enough to say it the point being was I think I know yeah, what you're talking about <laughs> that's really really alienating for someone because you're then oh, yeah. oh Jesus what term am I going yeah. to use and I said and for us the, the the objective is to bring people in not to push people away and that's the reason that so if you can get more comfortable with being at that stage of terminology great but I think yeah. I think we've got to be open-minded as a community so there's no hard and fast rules it's all about respecting about the individual mm. I mean I know when I was getting fitted for my first wheelchair the sales guy kept referring to the amputee and I was looking around wondering who he was talking about maybe that's the name of the wheelchair model I didn't know I realized he was mm. talking about me yeah. but he, he just couldn't even look at me because the disability was the only thing that was visible to the person I'm going more towards the disabled person route mm. but I think that's a lot of that is the experience in the UK because they talk about disability as being a problem that all of us in society have to fix because at the end of the day if you make it accessible for all of us then it's going to be accessible for as many people as possible the universal design approach just one thing to say really quickly as well is we sometimes get so hung up on the language we use to describe disability for me I actually think the much more serious conversation in terms of informing the world we live in is the language we use to, to refer to supports that are available for mm. people so to give you just a yeah. classic example, uh, there's many autism classes across the country now attached to schools. And the idea is, you know, children move fluidly from the mainstream classroom to the autism classroom. For 10 years, we've had those referred to as units. Now, straight away, that medicalizes the concept in your head. But also, if you're a student or a teacher or a principal who doesn't attend that classroom or doesn't teach in that environment, you think, A, it's nothing to do with me, and B, I probably have to wash my hands before I go in. And as a result, we need to think much more about that sort of language, I think, as that, that challenges people's behavior than the words that describe the condition. I mean, some people say the worst thing ever was calling the um, educational mm -hmm. needs for children with disabilities the Special, special. Educational mm -hmm. Needs Act, because I think those special needs is where mm -hmm. it sometimes gets difficult. Mm -hmm. So I think maybe we need to kind of agree that all of the labels should just be removed mm -hmm. when it comes to those kind of things and see the person for what they can bring. And of course, we also talk about disability pride. The fact that I'm very proud to be a disabled woman. Now, it took me a while. I mean, I think we talked about this earlier. It's quite difficult sometimes to want to wear that badge. And of course, don't forget, disability is a club that you join whether you want to or not. Because essentially, about 80 to 85% of disabilities, as we know, are acquired during your working life. So there's going to be more people in my situation than in, in your situation, or even just being able to come to terms with these things a little bit later in life. So I always think, and I know it's probably because my grandparents are in their 90s and very active, I always think that if you're lucky enough to live long enough, you'll join our club and you'll end up with a disability yourself. Yeah. But you have to remember that we need to think about not just new entrants coming into the firm, but also existing employees mm. and how they can be comfortable with talking about disability. I mean, think about it. How would you define yourselves if you had a disability? Would you be in the person first mm. camp or would you be in the identity first camp? Just leave that with you. But I also think that there's, there are huge mm. barriers. You know, when we talk about disability, we do talk about the barriers that exist for various different people. But there's a huge gap of untapped potential out there. Mm -hmm. And I know that you've been very vocal about this. There's mm -hmm. a huge amount of people with autism 
who are looking for work. Uh -huh. What is the biggest barrier, do you think, for the people you represent? Well, I spend the bulk of my time designing autism-friendly frameworks for schools or workplaces or, or wherever. But what I always think is if I was given a commission to design something that wasn't autism-friendly, I could just take a traditional recruitment um, process off the shelf because you cannot find something that's less autism-friendly. Uh, you start off with a job description that requires you to be able to read between the lines, but also that, ironically, over time, we have autistic people with scattered skill sets, so who will often be specialists, if you want to think about it in a workplace context. But what we do is we take very specialized roles that autistic people might be able to do, and we throw in, at the end, general skill sets and personal characteristics. So you must be really good in this niche area, but actually, as well as that, you must be an excellent communicator, uh, good at working in teams, and enjoy horse riding. We kind of throw in these <laughs> general personal characteristics that are outside a person's control, and as a result, we lose specialist talent. Um, the second th piece, I think, of course, is an interview is basically measuring your ability to, to, to build rapport with strangers, which is going to be a challenge for many autistic people. So I think it's about looking at how we can better facilitate and meet the accessibility needs of people. And that's simple things, because I think these measures are small, but autism-friendly measures tend to be people-friendly measures. So giving people the opportunity to demonstrate their skills as opposed to communicating them. Uh, ensuring that people, while they're still in education, have a chance to experience the workplace and learn on the job, as opposed to going through an interview process. And ensuring that how materials are written, it's very clear to people that they can ask for supports and that that won't be punitive against them. Because a lot of companies said, if I only knew, I would be happy to help. We have to bear in mind it's a huge risk for people to take to disclose. And people have to have clarity that A, they won't lose out, but B, that they will get supports on the back of that as well. So that whole disclosure, mm. I mean, it's, it's difficult enough when you're entering the firm, but when you're actually in the firm, how on earth would you go about actually discussing it? You know, you're quite senior at a certain level and then you get a diagnosis of MS. What, how does that change? I mean, I think we've all talked about different barriers, but both of yourselves with long work experiences, how have you been, or sorry, do you mind if you might tell me a little bit about your journey to getting those reasonable accommodations? Because as we talked about, diversity is getting in the door, mm -hmm. but inclusion is being accommodated to be able to work to your best, to be as effective as you possibly can, and to be as efficient as you possibly can. Anything you'd like to share? Because I know it can be quite difficult. And I can tell you a load of horrible stories for myself, if you like. No, well, um, when I joined the firm, I did disclose um, to my managers um, about my hearing loss um, to ensure that any supports I needed would be put in place. And um, that was partly because I had learned the price of disability denial when I was um, younger, um, when I was at school. Um, I didn't get any supports. Um, when I was diagnosed at 13, the local education board came in to speak to my headmistress. Um, to see what special assistance I might need in class. Um, my headmistress essentially sent them away and said, Davinia is top of her class, she doesn't need any help. Um, now that meant that from day one, I was treated the same as my peers, which was good, apart from the French listening test. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but it also meant that the burden was on me um, to make sure that I didn't miss anything and that I'd stayed up um, to date with everything. So it made me very resilient, um, and um, it probably gave me the determination that I have to succeed in life. But at university, my experience was just completely different. The disability officer immediately welcomed me with open arms and put all the supports I needed in place. And that enabled me to thrive and to reach my full potential so that I received a first-class honours at university. So yes, so the first thing I did when I came to Good Buddies was to say, you know, I am hard of hearing. Um, and um, I spoke to HR to see what they could do to help me. Um, as my 
years have gone by, everybody's my hearing has deteriorated quite unexpectedly to the extent that seven or eight years ago, I found myself profoundly deaf, um, which I didn't expect. Um, and I got a cochlear implant, which has actually been quite miraculous in returning my sense of sound. It doesn't work for everyone, but it sure worked for me. Um, but during those years when I was waiting to get my implant, there was a couple of years waiting list, my, con my career at Good Buddies continued to thrive. And that was because I was always given the opportunity um, to focus on my strengths and my abilities. Um, and actually during those years, I completed two diplomas um, and I was invited to join the editorial board of one of Ireland's leading data protection journals. And I received multiple invitations um, to speak at conferences because I published so widely. Um, but unfortunately, I did turn down some of those invitations. Even though I knew I could participate, um, I didn't feel empowered to ask um, for a copy of the panel um, questions in advance or to have a note ticket or present. So, um, I guess you could say I was invited to the party, but I wasn't mm -hmm. <laughs> getting up to dance. But um, that wouldn't happen today. Yeah, I, I totally share, share your feeling because mm -hmm. sometimes when you go through in a huge firm in particular, you might have to disclose several times over, mm -hmm. you know, to ask for your support. I know when you were in AIB, John, you were there for a long time, but I know that you're not shy about kind of coming forward and asking for something. And I also, I'm conscious that I'm asking a former Paralympian this question. Have you ever seen Paralympians get into their cars from their wheelchair? Holy moly, it's incredible. So I'm conscious that I'm asking someone who's incredibly capable, but did you have any difficulties or, or any noteworthy experiences when you were asking for accommodations during your working life? I did, and I suppose for me, um, I suppose I'll put it in God, your point there is valid, as it goes back to what you see is what you get, so people are more aware of it. So they're automatically thinking about it more. And um, you're no wallflower. You would definitely be No, and, and I'm not shy about telling them and trying to work. Like if I was in school, the toilets weren't accessible. So I told them, I can't go to the toilet. So I worked with them. We just changed the door around so it opened outward instead of inward. Very simple solution. And just, just one thing to say, the solutions don't need to be rocket science. Mm. The solutions can be very, very simple things. So I was, I was lucky in, 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 in that sense that I, that I had, had enough confidence to be able to to, to just challenge and put it out there. But not everybody feels that way. Every personality is different. But the one thing that I found by virtue of that was that people used to come to me and say, you know what, I don't see your disability. And to me, I felt like saying, well, you're a bit of an Egypt because it's there. <laughs> but, the, but behind it was, I don't want you to see, like my disability is part of who I am. It's framed my thoughts, it's framed, it, it, it doesn't define me, but it's part of who I am. And, I, and if we want to, I think, I, put, I wear my badge on my sleeve, yes, and I'm, I'm proud to, to, to have that, that diversity and that difference thought. I have someone working with me in the, in the Paralympic world who has Asperger's. Now, if I want, to, looking at the skills of that person, if I want to get him, he's filterless. He's like <laughs> completely filterless, so there's no emotion to be said. So if I want to deliver a tough message, I'll put him in the meeting and I'll get him to do it. <laughs> and by God, the message is delivered and it's delivered. And <laughs> so that's, that there's a skill, there's an example of using a skill that, that you have. So, but I, di I did encounter, and what I became very much aware of in AIB is that I'm, it's, it's not just about my perspective. And that, so, People would use me as an example. So I, again, I did come across a, a couple of minor issues, like it could, there could be, like they put in new lifts, but I just, I just found that the, the lifts, the buttons were up there, and thank God I've got long arms, but by God, if I didn't have long arms, it was a problem. 
Um, and then they put it, they replace those lifts with, with the ones outside that you press the button and then the, 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 the display will be up there. But there was no audio. So if you've got a vision impairment, my God, you're, you're going to be standing outside the lift for a long time. And if you get into it, God only knows where you'll go. So I, I, that was my, la that, uh, that's what I could say. My, my own experience was, my lesson there was, I'm not the, I'm not like people saying, will you go out and check a building in terms of access to make sure it's okay? And I said, I'm possibly the worst person to send out because I'm small, my chair is compact, I'm quite able, I can hop up and down two or three steps, no problem. I'm not the person who needs to assess that for, for the needs of the people who, who do need the accommodations. So again, it's, it's to broaden your perspective as you don't, don't assume. Um, and so luckily for me, um, my experience was, was, was a positive one because I was able to articulate it, but not everybody is that comfortable and, and not one person is the sole source of knowledge in, in terms of the accommodations that need to be made. Now you're messing with my job title here as disability employment specialist expert knows everything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But you know, we, we'll go with that. But I totally agree with you. And I mentioned Paralympics in particular because isn't it an Olympic year, mm -hmm. 2020? Mm -hmm. So yeah. my disability is gonna get sexy about what, August? In August, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because I know Oscar Pistorius tried to ruin it for all amputees. <laughs> but we're, we're oh. trying to work our way back up there. But we don't um, all shoot people. <laughs> but I, I just know that there's gonna be a summer of having difficult conversations with taxi drivers. Yeah. So I also always want yeah. if they if they bring a wheelchair taxi you know I just can't lift the legs the right way mm. so I always want a little step but of course the last I think it was 20 2012 or it might have been the, the one after that and the taxi driver had told me it probably was 2012 actually with London mm. taxi driver told me that he'd been giving lifts to lots of Paralympians and why couldn't I just get into the cab the way they did and he'd given a lift to someone who was born without two legs and he had basically jumped out of his wheelchair, done a handstand right into the, into the taxi and just like flung himself into the chair. And I'm kind of looking at him like this, holding the two hands, going, handstand, yeah? But obviously, because all amputees get into a car the same way, right? It's exactly that. Each disability is so different and so specific to each person. But look, Let's face it, we've been talking about this disability, equality, diversity, inclusion for years. We used to only talk about equality and we didn't even include mm. autism at all. It was all kind of sensory and physical mm. and those that you could actually see. So how do we fix it? How do we actually change it? How do we move the needle? I'm looking at you, John. <laughs> oh, crap. Well, it, uh, I mean, it let's is, face yeah. it, you know, the, yeah. the, the numbers are shocking. So the last time that they did the EU country report for Ireland, it showed that people with disabilities in 2011 were less likely to be in the workforce. But you're really mm. talking 11% of people with a disability were living in consistent poverty. But then last year's report showed that 24% of people with disabilities are living in consistent poverty. So things mm. aren't getting better, they're getting worse. Mm. Even though we're all changing things, so how are we going to fix it? We've only got five minutes now, lads. <laughs> okay. Well, like the, there's no quick, there's no quick solution. But I think we've moved the O2 Ability Awards was great, and I was involved with the O2 Ability Awards at the time, and I thought it was a really powerful um, tool to encourage business through competition to make changes, because com businesses love competition. By God, they do. <laughs> but um, what happened when the, the crunch came was we realized that the, the great strides that were being made weren't so great because the, what the, the nice to have was no longer a must have, it became a could have. So it was pushed down the agenda and the Titan funds were focused in another stuff. So, we, so you know, we've been having this conversation for a long time. I think we need to acknowledge and recognize that there are still challenges out there. And the, you mentioned the, the, the super crip, the superhumans that, that Channel 4, I understand Channel 4's 
um, tack in terms of advertising right. the Paralympic Games, the superhumans. Lads, we're not superhuman, we're just human. And I get it, it's a marketing ploy, but I hate it because it, 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 it's divisive in terms of terminology. It's putting those who are the most able up there and just mm. nearly dismissing those who, who, who can't do that, mm. um, the story you tell. Mm -hmm. So I think we need to acknowledge that the challenges are there. And I think that I know a girl who, who finished top of her school in the, Smurfit, the top of her class in Smurfit Business School. Um, she had cerebral palsy, so she was a beautiful looking girl, very well presented, but she used a power chair um, and she had a speech impediment. She went for 35 data entry level jobs before she finally got a job as at a very basic level for someone who finished top of her class. So that's, that's a real tangible example. So I think number one, we, we now, but the, instead of the nice to have, we now have to go and start calling people out. And, we, and how do we do that? Well, we, we, we call out those challenges, but we get advocates on our side. So A&L, good buddy. Like, if we can get 70 people out of this room becoming our champions for that cause and being the ones visibly making the changes, for me, I think that's huge. And in, in Irish Wheelchair Association, advocacy is such a huge part of our role. And I have to say that because I sit beside the advocacy officer and she'll beat me up if I don't. But it's about calling it out. It's about calling it out and then being prepared to support when we do. And I think that's why I like to use the language that's associated with the, you know, um, equal marriage equality and with the LGBT plus mm. more letters to be added. Mm. Um, but I think that's why I, I talk about pride mm. and coming out with disability mm. because it is allies and those of us not only who have mm. a disability, but also our family and friends as well. I also think that one of the things that have changed recently is that once upon a time when we talked equality before the recession, we didn't have the statistics that actually show that it works. Now we do. Mm. Now we have all of the data that we might possibly want to show that return on disability actually works. Mm. Not only is there Accenture uh, getting to equal the Disability Inclusion Advantage Report, but then there's also the return on disability, um, an entire global research um, funded by somebody with a disability. Seriously, just to look at this. So just to give you a couple of stats, because I just think these are brilliant. Not only are we talking about um, a market segment that's worth eight trillion US dollars, think about the huge amount of customers you could be looking at there. But within that Accenture research, 45 organizations and companies were actually researched. And those that were the most inclusive of disability in the areas of employment and leadership were actually shown over a four year period to have 25% higher revenue double the net income and 20% higher, or sorry, 30% higher economic profit margins. That's the real reason. Mm. So it's mm. not just to mm. employ mm. beautiful individuals like ourselves, it actually makes business sense. Mm -hmm. So what can we actually do? How can this firm be more inclusive? What do you think might be the challenges for existing employees, Davinia? I think, um, I suppose we want to create a culture of respect, you know, and um, where people want to be able to bring their authentic selves um, to work. Um, and I suppose our ultimate aim is just to be able to um, create a culture where everybody's comfortable to just, you know, feeling that they can disclose and that they will get um, the supports they need um, by disclosing. So I think um, the whole diversity and inclusion committee are working towards um, achieving this ultimate aim. Um, and that's like, as I said at the beginning, it's everybody's responsibility. Um, Definitely, because it doesn't move forward unless we all talk about it. Yeah. And that whole conversation of it's okay not to be okay. Yeah. It's okay to have your skin falling off and still come into work. 
Um, and what about new employees? What would you what would you recommend that the firm do to be more inclusive? Yeah, I think there's probably two things that I think are, are important. I think the first is, and I think it's why Davinia's contribution here today is so important, but you're asking why we've been at these things for so long and so little is changing. I think for a very long time, the sol possible solutions have been designed by people who don't have disabilities themselves. And I have a kind of funny example of that. I got a call from a, a really big company um, about six months ago, and they wanted to hire some um, autistic people, and they ran quite a large campaign, and they'd heard me talk and say 85% of autistic people were unemployed or underemployed. So they thought this was great. They were going to be inundated with CVs. And two weeks after the campaign, they hadn't received a single application. So they rang me up. I hadn't run the campaign, but I was nearly like it was my fault. <laughs> and why had they not got? So I said, right, I'll come out to you today and have a look. So we sat down, and the first thing was they didn't actually give a job description. They said, are you autistic? We're hiring. Email this address. Now, I think that's just rude, but also everyone would need to know um, what the job description of an autistic person needs a little bit more detail. Yeah. An the, autistic person needs it more than a non-autistic person. The visual in the ad was a person very stressed, and it used the color red, which is the trigger color for many autistic people. So we made a few changes, and they recruited 12 people. And this is a concrete example of if you actually talk to the community before you go out to do things, you can do it correctly. Um, the second thing, and I think it's just important, it links to what uh, the project we did in DCU around creating an autism-friendly university. DCU, a university at 16,000 when we started the project, only 40 students registered with the disability service as being autistic. So we sent our survey to all students. And what was very interesting was 54% of autistic respondents had never disclosed to the university that they were on the spectrum. And the main two reasons were, I didn't like how I was supported when I was in school, or I'm worried people won't take me as seriously, or I think I didn't get here on my own merits. What that really tells me is, as we see more and more people age out of education into the workplace, businesses need to be very proactive in their messaging, and not, can't assume that people will come forward themselves, or that they've had positive experiences. Some of this is to do what's happened in education, not even in the workplace. But we need businesses proactively leading this conversation and saying they want disabled talent. Totally. And I think they have to be, as you say, really, really specific about it. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's a positive action measure. And maybe it's throwing mm -hmm. all of the interview rules out the window just for applicants with disabilities. Because when I worked on the Willing Able Mentoring Programme, when you ask people to disclose for a specific campaign, especially during the recession where there were no jobs, everybody was disabled then. It's like if they change the parking to just be wheelchair, you know, to just be paid parking, everyone gets a disability then. So it's cool when you're in queues in the airport, when you need some parking, and when, you know, yeah. exactly you as you said. My wife say? married me. <laughs> Good parking, yeah. Parking and skipping passport queues. What more do you want? There are so many different issues, and I think that's one of the key things. We need people to identify themselves as people with disabilities, because without data, then we can't actually create a strategy. Mm. We need to have a, a way to do it. And I think that what you've said is exactly the important thing. A lot of people out there mightn't want to identify as someone who's different. I know when I was in college, I spent most of my time running away from the disability officer. And uh, he just chased me around campus for a couple of years, until eventually I heard there were free laptops going, and I was right <laughs> in there. <laughs> But I also think we have to remember that education is so well supported and there are so many stories of people with disabilities and belonging to minority groups that actually go back in the closet when they go into the workplace.
and the statistics are quite shocking. I know there's a huge amount out there. Um, I can't remember the exact name of the LGBT plus charity and the, the data collection. I'll send it to you when I remember. But I think that's the important thing. We've got so many people with a disability probably in this firm. How do we get them to put their hands up and go, hey, I'm different? How do we encourage people to disclose? What do you think, John? Oh, look, the, the reality is there's a fear out there. There's a fear that from if you, both sides, from both sides, there's a fear. And it's not all the employer's fault. Like there are like it, it, I think it's important to say that, like, as you say, you might advertise for like 20,000 positions for people with disabilities. You might not be able to fill them mm. because the reality is there are broader socioeconomic mm. factors that are impacting here. There are like a, we, we run an, a, a, an ability program where we look to try and get people into the employment mm -hmm. market or employment ready. And the reality is some of their challenges are far more basic in terms of the supports that they got. Their families tended to, to bring them up so they don't have the life skills experience. They're afraid to get a bus. They might not be able to get a bus. Mm -hmm. When they go to take the bus, there might be someone with a pram on it who says, I've got twins, I'm not taking this pram apart. No matter what you tell me to do, I get that. Um, so there, it's just a small example, but there are broader issues there in terms of life skills. So it's once people are getting ready, are ready to go to the employment market, then it's great that at the other side, ready to receive them with open arms are the employers who recognize the, the business benefit of taking them in. Um, so it's, it's addressing those fears and how do we, you know, just step by step address Completely. those fears. It's going to be achieved overnight. It's going to be a process. And like today is obviously the first conversation that we've had about disability. And so the more people talk about disability and have those courageous conversations, um, then the more open and inclusive culture we're going to you know, achieve at the firm. And I know that there's you know, some millennials on my team at the moment, and they haven't been afraid to ask me about my disability and um, find out, you know, or how, you know, just simply ask me, you know, how can I help you? You know, what barriers are you facing you in your everyday? And, um, and they've done everything they can to accommodate me. Mm -hmm. So um, I just don't be afraid to ask. And I, I think we also have to remember sometimes the partial disclosure that happens. So like I always talk about my limbs because I have framed it, particularly with my nieces and nephews, as me having a superpower. I know John doesn't approve of me being superhuman, but it's cool, I think. The trouble is then, when I talk to my, um, my nephew with, with Asperger's actually, he gets really annoyed because I'm telling lies. <laughs> so you him. can't win. I say I'm a superhero, part Batman, I've got my mobility scooter in the back of the car, which they, you know, drive all the time. So I think it's really important that we're sort of normalizing the idea of being different and talking about it now here. We're hoping that you guys will come forward and take it and run with it. Because of course, this disability committee is your committee. And we would love to be able to help you out in whatever way, because I think it's talking to you guys and you guys coming together to come up with solutions for the organization that's gonna make all the difference. One of the qualifications I hold is all about accommodating somebody who's returning to the workplace with a disability. It's the National Institute of Disability Management and Research, I think, can't remember the end of the name. But the whole point about it is it's a Canadian model and it's because there are so many physically difficult jobs in Canada. So logging and fishing and all of those things. So you have a lot of people who are in wheelchairs or losing limbs. So what they basically do is they get all of their colleagues, lock them in a room and ask them what they would want them to do if they acquired a disability. I think it's great. A lot of people are against the locking people in a room thing, <laughs> apparently. But what I think is so creative about that is that it's actually asking you guys what you think. What would you want to do 
if you had a disability tomorrow? And what do you think of when you think about the ideal candidate who's coming to work in the firm? Do they have a disability? Possibly not. And I think that's one of the big challenges here when we're talking about disability in the workplace, is that you don't always see the disabled person as the ideal candidate because you expect them to behave a certain way at interview. And as we know, autism just isn't going to behave that way. You're going to expect them to reach out and, and you know, shake your right hand. But I've had people scream when they touch the cold of my prosthetic. So I think it's really important that we look beyond all of that and remember that people with disabilities, apart from this crowd, are all creative problem solvers and really, really good at coming up with a solution. Mm. In particular, when you know you guys booked the bionic woman, but she's not even bionic. Bionic is off for repairs. Gone to places where I've never even been. So I think the important things, we've talked about our embarrassing stories of disclosure, but we also talk, I wanted to mention about that idea of partial disclosure, where there's some disabilities that I'll talk about, like the bionicness, and I won't always talk about the things that are hidden, which aren't as pleasant, but they might be a need-to-know basis. So a perfect example I've always found is that somebody might talk about their physical disability because it's obvious, but we don't want to talk about the mental health issues. And I think that's hugely important. All of my friends know that I, I use my disability to tell jokes all of the time. But when I talked to them about my mental health difficulties, they all went, oh, Jesus, Shona, don't tell anyone that. I kind of thought, well, hang on a second. Surely there's more people like me who have mental health difficulties or who are going through a really tough time than there are people who are missing three limbs. I'm unique in Ireland. You know, I think that's really important. So what do you think the firm needs to be more inclusive? Do you think that the disability subcommittee should have a disability officer specific so that somebody can actually ask those accommodation questions of? What do you think, Adam? I think these are, these are all good ideas. And I think that one of the, I think, things that we've seen has been really successful in the past as well as you'll have people like Davinia who are comfortable uh, or brave in coming forward and sharing their own experiences. I think any mechanism that can be put in place to allow people to confidentially say, I'm somebody who works in this firm, this is the firm that I would, this is the direction of travel I'd like to see the firm go in. It's not possible for a lot of workplaces where things stand at the moment to have a team of people with disabilities leading this discussion. So you have a group of people often who are allies, uh, but maybe really don't experience the barriers on a day-to-day -day basis. So creating a space in which people can feed back without identifying, I think is really, really important. Because even if people aren't ready to tell their stories yet, it gives you the pool of data to inform your work data-driven, for yeah. sure. No, I agree, too. It's, um, having a, you know, deciding who to disclose to is as important as the decision to disclose itself. And just having someone that's um, accountable, really, and responsible for making sure the supports are in place, and especially in a big organization where you know the person with the disability might not know who do I contact? Is this a HR function? Is it an IT function to get my technology in place? You know, to have one person to hold that responsibility and to liaise with the relevant departments um, would certainly uh, be helpful. And maybe that's the direct manager. Maybe that is the direct manager. Is there any final tips you have for us, John? Do you know what? It's there, there's no one solution fits all here, as as the guys articulated. It's 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 what works for the company. But for me, uh, the, the accountability here. But I think there there's leadership required. So I don't think that the senior teams are the CEOs or the MDs, whoever they are, need to be standing on the top of the rooftops are like Citibank down the way with the big poster on the front of their, now they're a sponsor of Paralympics Ireland, so we're delighted <laughs> that they have a, a massive poster on the front of their building. I actually am. I, I would have loved that when I was competing. 
but and particularly yeah. if I was on it. But, but apart from that, it's the leadership. It's getting so you don't need to be on the top of the building shouting from the rooftops, but culturally that, that you want as leaders, if you want that to happen in your organization, I think that, that I think if that's that's part of who and what you are as a leader, I think that will filter down and it and it and people will be a lot more comfortable with it. For sure, and I'm sure that it's the trust and confidentiality in that system that's important. I always think from my perspective, and I know it's probably working in HR, I always want to be able to answer the question, sure, why would I bother? What's in it for me? And if you guys can answer that question, I think you have it cracked. Yeah. So I'd love if, to invite you all to give a huge round of applause for our panel.